Hi, this is your host of Bush School on Court, Justin Bullock. Um, as we've mentioned before, um, we're doing a series of episodes on um, migration and asylum seeking in the U.S., particularly at the Texas-Mexico border. Um, as you will probably heard by now, Faith and I have already done a little bit of debriefing about what some of my experiences were and how this kind of fits in the big picture of policy and what uh, policy actors are doing right now, both at the federal and state level, and what also nonprofits are doing on the ground to help and, and what that looks like and um, how we experience that. But we're lucky enough tonight to have with us the team of folks we went with, as uh, we may have mentioned, Mary Lou Hare is a former Bush School student and had been down to Matamoros um, before, and that's how we learned about this opportunity to kind of go down to the border and see what was going um, on with asylum seekers. And um, so uh, her uh, father um, is with us and friend is with us, and I'm gonna let them introduce themselves in just a moment to give their full background on them. But uh, we had a lot of fun with this group and the ways in which you um, can have fun in these environments. Um, it was nice to bond with you all. Um, it made the whole experience um, kind of uh, easier to bear being able to do it with a group of people that you had gotten to know and to kind of hear your stories and hear how you all come to this issue and how you ended up kind of in Matamoros and in Brownsville um, serving the refugees. So I want to thank you all for taking the time and hanging out with Faith and I and uh, debriefing. I know there will be parts of this that will not be easy for everyone. So um, thank you so much. So with that, I'll, um, I'll, what I've told the team I'll do is give them each a moment to introduce themselves um, so you know who you're hearing from. So again, I'm Justin Bullock. Next to me. Hey everybody, my name is Faith, and I'm Dr. Bullock's graduate assistant, and also that makes me his favorite student by default. Oh my goodness. So, yeah, that's me. And you are related to the podcast. I'm the podcast producer. So she takes all of our audio and our conversations and makes sure they're put out to you all. Um, Scott, maybe you could uh, you could go next to the top left of my screen there, and maybe tell us a little bit about you and um, how you ended up on this trip with us. Uh, yeah, I am Scott Spryer. I am a first and foremost, I guess, Mary Lou's dad, uh, and she had talked a lot about this trip. I'm a former uh, journalist uh, and semi-retired consultant and writer. Um, the other reason that I got involved, because I'm on the missions committee at our church, which in, in a way helps sponsor this. Um, so um, I had been interested in it, from both perspectives, but uh, uh, and and personally, but uh, Mary Lou talked about it, and I decided I should come and see it. This and your and our trip together was your first trip, as my first trip, exactly. All right, thanks, Scott. Angela, I'm Angela Sayer. I'm on the same committee as Scott at our church, and that's how I came to this specific trip. Um, more of a loaded question as why I joined this trip is that I, in the past, went to the first, um, one of the first family detention centers in El Paso when they were starting to separate children from their families. Um, so it's always been something that's been very close to my heart, been very close to what I feel like has been my extended familial experience, uh, which we can get into later. But that's pretty much the gist. I, I'm also an opinionated type of protester, 
and I wanted to kind of see facts for myself and be on the ground and know where I could actually help and fit into the situation. So that's kind of where I've started to really get my footing. Um, thanks for sharing all that. I was also part of um, part of our motivation was just to see it on the ground and see what it actually looks like. Um, Cause it's really, I think it's easy for it all to get lost in the headlines and, and words to kind of quit having their human, human meaning and seeing it on the ground is, um, is, is kind of helpful to put it into perspective, I think. Truly. Mary Lou. Howdy. So I am a Bush school alum. Whoop. Um, and, um, uh, had Professor Bullock for quantitative um, analysis, um, and actually the first time I went down to the border was about 15-ish months ago um, with my church, uh, Angela and my father, Scott, and I all go to Wilshire um, in Dallas, and went down originally just to see what was happening, um, and this space kind of became home really quickly for me, and it's become a place I have come back to multiple, multiple times, um, really passionate about this immigration refugee asylum issue, um, especially in my state and um, in my community and how that impacts uh, who we are as a country and who we are as a state and um, how we show love and uh, respect to these other humans. So um, I have not been silent about my passion for this and, um, I would classify it as my rage about the way we've been treating people um, overall and have gotten to have some really awesome conversations with all the individuals that went on this trip in really different ways um, and was really glad that this group of people kind of came together to um, experience it in, in, another, in another way um, and with people we haven't experienced it with before. So, yeah. And how many um, total trips have you made in the last 15 months? So this was my fifth trip. So one thing, if it's okay with everyone, I um, noticed a theme across the three of you's responses and what, and what ties you is, uh, is your church and your um, uh, Christian faith. And so uh, before we uh, move on from that, I'm curious if someone would be happy to explain or be willing to explain the connection there um, in your minds as to um, why your faith or how your faith has informed your desire to, um, to speak out about these things, to go serve uh, refugees. I was wondering if someone might just tell me a little bit more about the connection between um, asylum seekers and refugees and um, your Christian uh, faith. Well, I'll start, but I'm going to throw it to Scott and Angela here in a second. Uh, Jesus was um, a refugee and was seeking asylum most of his life. So I think that would be the first way it ties into our faith. But Angela and Scott, I'll throw it back to you. Go ahead, Angela. I mean, well, that's hard to be, <laughs> to say that Jesus is a refugee, which is true. Um but I will say, speaking with um, many different Christians that are my best friends um, across different demographics and church denominations, it is sometimes it, it feels like being in a church is like being in a high castle 
to where we're supposed to strive to this, to be this level of, um, to this level of righteousness. And that's a personal journey. And as long as it's a safe journey, then we're living our Christian life. But that is very far removed from our communities. And I feel like that's a reason why people have kind of left the church. And I feel like being a Christian is being out in the world and doing these things that are not easy, that are not comfortable, and that are not full of judgment. Our purpose is to be in these places where people are in need and to show them that we can help each other and we can grow and that there is a lot of love to go around and that there is abundance if we create it, right? Yeah, that's very helpful, thank you. Scott? Um, let me say that um, I was asked this question Sunday and uh, I'm a, uh, I kind of classify myself as a born-again agnostic uh, masquerading as a Baptist. Um, and I think Angela and Mary Lou said it very well. I did not go because of my religion. I went because I believe that looking at what Christ did as a human sets a very good example for how the rest of us should should act and how we should do things and i look as i look back that was part of it uh, but i think it was equally a political reason for going um, i did not only want to see to help uh, these people but i wanted to see for myself and take action in a political sense uh, to move the issue forward. I think, Justin, can I add one other thing? This is Mary Lou um, jumping in here. I think that um, statement that, well, actually, I think both Scott and Angela said it, is that sometimes coming on these trips, um, I leave feeling less romanticized about my faith than I go when I uh, than I feel when I start the trip, if that makes sense. Um, it feels harder to come home and be a Christian um, uh, and to try to embody that love and goodness um, when you've seen the things we saw. Yeah. I agree with that. Yes. I saw, I saw, um, uh, working with us was a group of, uh, uh, people from a uh, Lutheran Senate, I believe it was, in the South, a group of people, and again, uh, 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 Christians. Um, but as I talked to them and, and watched them and watched our group, and uh, I'm a old boomer, and I was on this trip with four millennials, um, and the two things I observed were one, the the older folks including me and the, the folks uh from uh, uh the southern senate uh acted very much and talked very much like old hippies uh who continue to maintain the values that they're going to save the world and i was very happy to see that i thought the millennials that were on the trip 
shared those same values. So all was good. You know, it was, it was nice how it felt like we were bonding across generations. Um, and, you know, we, we've highlighted the Christian element, but across faiths as well. Um, you know, one of the nights when I served food, I was working uh, next to a Muslim woman. Another night I was working with a Jewish man. Um, and so it was people representing all right. kinds of different faiths that um, kind of come to this place to, to serve the refugees and help feed them. And <clears throat> what I'd like to shift to is talking a little bit about what we actually did to give people some uh, reference point for kind of what's going on and what we're talking about. We have, they would have gotten some background on this, but kind of what the actual experience was um, like um, volunteering with World Central Kitchen and with Team Brownsville and what that kind of looked like and, and what we kind of saw and experienced. Uh, listeners would have already heard me um, talk about this. So I'm just gonna add a little bit at the end. Um, Mary Lou, if it's okay, since you have uh, the most experience, I think maybe uh, it would be useful to kind of tap you to describe to the best you can what it was like this time when you were down there and take a few minutes and then um, the rest of us can, can add as well. Would that be okay to ask of you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Maybe so, tell us what um, it's like. Yeah, so let me give some reference, I think, to the other times I've been down there. We, um, so one of the things that's really hard about the, the MPP expectations, this Migrant Protection Protocol or the Remain in Mexico policy, um, is that it started and grew really fast in Matamoros. And so the first time I was down there, we were talking to maybe 12 people waiting on the border. The second time, which was just a few months later, we were talking to about 600 people on the border. Um, so when I was down there in September, we fed about, I believe it was about 800 individuals who were seeking asylum waiting in Matamoros. Um, and what we were doing at that point, Teams Brownsville was arranging, volunteers were arranging all of the food that was brought over. So you volunteered for a couple of nights and you not only volunteered to serve food, but you volunteered to fund the food, to cook the food, um, to figure out where the food was coming from, all of the details around the meal. And um, I thought I was really good at cooking for about 20 people. Cooking for 800 is a whole nother ball game. Oh, yeah. It takes a skill level that just, you know, um, so uh, that was that's been my previous experience. But this time was really wonderful. There's a group called World Central Kitchen who has um, agreed to stay in Matamoros um, for the foreseeable future to serve um, a meal every night to those waiting. And they have it down to such a beautiful system. They are sourcing produce and food locally as best that they can. They're creating meals that are unique to the individuals waiting that are really specific to their heritage uh, and their communities and their home. Um, and really taking into account that these are real people eating real meals and the value that a, a nutritious and warm um, and friendly served meal really brings to somebody is just overwhelming. The dignity that provides is huge. Um, so we got to be part of both the preparing the food with World Central Kitchen and then walking across and serving it with Teams Brownsville. Anyone else want to jump in just to kind of describe the, the general uh, of what you were doing and some of the things you experienced while you were actually on the ground uh, working with World Central Kitchen? 
crossing over into Matamoros, just some of the experiences of being there on the ground that um, anyone would like to point to? I, I think one of the biggest things that is surprising when you go into volunteer work like this is how hardy the work is. You know, you're physically exhausted at the end of the day because you're doing so many things and that helps with the emotional, with dealing with the emotional toil or toll of it during that time frame. But I mean, the work is constant, so you have to prepare for that before you go, kind of, if you've, if you've already done it, you know, to prepare that you're going to be going all day long, that there are lots of people that need you and that want you and will, you know, it's important to give as much of yourself as possible. And especially if you're passionate about it. Um, but World Central Kitchen, that having them there because like Mary Lou, I've been there once before and it's a totally different ballgame. So it's more organized, it's less chaotic, um, it's more humane, it feels, um, it feels like a loving experience. Um, but you know, it's still hard work. You still have to cook in Brownsville and carry it across the border. And then people in the camp come and help you take it down into the camp. And you know, people in the camp are helping you serve. So it's a very much a communal activity. It feels like something that you would do you know, I keep going back to saying this whenever I explain it to other people, it feels kind of like a land run. It feels like people are setting up their homes for the first time who they don't know if they're staying or they're going and you're kind of participating in this kind of experience. Um, so it's a lot of work. It, it takes more of a physical toll, I think, than people uh, initially think. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the prep time, you know, is... As you all know, we started around one and the actual prep of the food is for a thousand people, even given the volunteers that are there is a lot of work. And then it's loading it, all the food up into the back of a couple vehicles and then pulling it across uh, the international bridge um, in wagons um, and then standing um, and serving food until about, you know, 830. So it's seven, seven and a half hours um, on, on, your, uh, on your feet. And man, the World Central Kitchen people, they do it seven days a week and there's just a couple right. of them and they're working 12, 12 hours a day doing what we did for a couple of days for the for nine hours you know eight hours uh, or so yeah. and um, man it just must be so exhausting and what's really beautiful about what they're doing is that you know we worked the one to four thirty shift um, each day and then went immediately and served but the group of women that Scott was talking about earlier they worked the 10 a.m to 12 30 shift so they were there in the morning making somewhere between 200 and 400 sandwiches to make sure that kids had breakfast for the next morning. So not only were we preparing food for that night, but there was a group there in the morning um, helping them get ready for other meals that might be needed. And I know the group that's down there this weekend was helping them uh, cut up handmade soap to make sure that each asylum seeker had soap so they could actually shower this week, which is really beautiful. So they're, I mean, they're doing really cool stuff in such short amounts of time. Yeah. Scott, do you, um, do you have anything you want to add about uh, kind of on the ground work that, that you were doing while you were there? I just think to Andrea's point, it is a lot of physical work. I found the hardest part um, crossing the border because we were hauling these wagons with, it felt like 75 pounds of food on each one of them. 
and uh, as you go across, uh, you, of course, there there is uh, you you have to in Matamor to go over into Mexico. You you have to pull the wagons up a hill, and then uh, uh, go across the border, and then have to carry the wagons up this flight of uh, stairs to get to the camp. And as I was thinking about it, I thought it's the physical, but there was something given the situation, and we were treated very well uh, by the uh, board officials on both sides, but just the nature of what we do, were doing, there added for me a, a, a very much an emotional labor in crossing the border as well as a physical labor. Yeah, and the um, emotional labor is maybe something we could talk a little bit about. One of the things for people who um, might decide to volunteer um, is to think through, you know, both the physical and the emotional labor um, as part of as part of serving. I know we talked about this when we were there, and and I've said to Mary Lou a few different times, and she really uh, prepped me um, about how it would uh, impact you emotionally, which made the process feel um normal uh as in terms of a, what a response often is um to uh, being out of your normal environment um and and serving in that way and so one of the things that uh, mary lou had told me is so we were going uh we started serving on friday and we served friday and saturday uh with rural central kitchen and uh, did the escalita on sunday and then uh, uh returned back to our homes um but, you know, uh, as you're serving on Friday, you really don't know what to expect. It starts, you notice fairly quickly that it's going to be physically taxing. You're getting to know people. You're kind of getting to know your surroundings. You get the job done. We actually had about an hour break that day in between serving food and, and walking, uh, walking the food across. Um, and as you walk across the border with the food, um, cross over the street, go to the camp, as you're doing it, I'll just you don't have a lot of feeling, at least I didn't. You're just trying to kind of um, like figure out what's going on around you and how can you help and how can you be useful and kind of taking in all the new surroundings at once. And then you're in there uh, in the tent serving, um, you know, about a thousand people uh, coming through the food line that you're serving. And, and then it's kind of over. And then, you know, each night we went back and we, we would help pack up, take stuff back across. The five of us would uh, kind of have dinner and I, you know, I noticed Mary Lou had said, you know, on Friday, you're just gonna be tired. You're not gonna be able to process and that's okay. That's exactly how I felt Friday night as we were all together. I was just exhausted and I didn't feel anything. It was kind of just numb. And then as I um, said to you all, and Mary, Mary Lou had said to me was, you know, on the next morning as you're starting your day um, and kind of reflecting on what happened, you had a night of sleep or um, that it'll kind of hit you the the emotional uh response to kind of the human suffering that you're seeing uh on the ground and was exactly how it played out that the, the the second day i was kind of emotionally taxed i had a hard time talking about what we were doing and that was kind of on top of the physical um uh labor so that by Sunday morning, I was just beat. I mean, I was sort of in a daze as we were as we were doing the uh, Escalita Sunday morning. Like I, I helped, but it was uh, it kind of come at you from all angles. And so, anyways, I think 
uh, not to keep throwing it back to, to you, Mary Lou, but maybe you could talk about, um, about that process and describe it kind of in the way that you've described me. I don't think I did it justice, uh, just about how people that do go and serve some of the emotional labor that, that you've observed over your trips. And then I'd like to hear from everyone else about how, you know, emotionally it, it struck them as well. So um, you did a great job explaining it. I do, um, I do feel like the first, the first night is just going in and seeing, right? You're absorbing, you're learning, you're, uh, for me, each time I go, even though I'm seeing faces I've seen for, you know, some of them I've been seeing them for a year now. Um, every time I walk back into that space, it takes me a minute to remember that what we're doing is uh, bringing human dignity into a space where they have really been denied it. And when you're serving someone a meal that is smiling at you or kids who are laughing about, no, I don't want salad. Um, sometimes it's hard to remember in that exact moment where you are and the situation that you're in. And it isn't until you have slept and have kind of, uh, dealt with that physical exhaustion that you experienced, um, that you start to process the emotion. Um, for me, this trip was really interesting because I was seeing faces that I saw in September. And uh, people were recognizing me and remembering me and kids knew me who I was. And that's a really, really beautiful and really horrific thing in this situation, right? There's a sense of beauty in that it's a face they recognize and they're so happy to see that you're back. Um, they're so willing to talk to you and tell you more and to laugh with you. And it's horrific because I can't believe you've been sitting here for this long waiting for somebody to tell you that your fear is valid and that your life is worthy um, of being protected. So I, um, I really cycle through the emotions. It was uh, when we got there Friday night, when we first served, and we were serving in a tent with tables where people could sit down in a community, could talk to each other, um, they knew there was enough food, parents weren't death gripping their children's wrists to make sure that they got something. Um, I actually left Friday evening feeling relieved, like there's something good happening here. There's something really good happening. Yeah. And Saturday morning, I woke back up and was like, but we were in a refugee camp. We were in a space that people who have been in war zones say is more horrific than war zones they've seen. Uh, and then you start thinking about all of the unique faces and the stories and the smiles. Um, and it just, each day for me is another layer of wanting to absorb their pain, sit with them in that hurt, and also remind them that they're loved and valuable and that my can I really want them to be awarded the safety and the security that I have um, because I know they're worth it so I have told everybody um, who went with us and I was very open about this that one of the things one of the deals I made with some of my friends was I would keep going to the border as long as I started seeing a grief therapist um, to work through some of the grief that I experienced and bring home with me um, and some of the stories that I carry with me from these people, um, you know, there's, there's beauty in loving other humans and there's pain in loving other humans. And, um, that does not, that's not diminished in this space 
in any way. Um, it might be exacerbated on both ends. So. That's all really helpful. Um, thanks. Um, rest of the team, uh, would you like to share kind of some of your own emotional responses? How you how you processed it? Um, any of any of the kind of emotional labor pieces that you would like to share? Um, I think would be would be great to hear. I feel like for me, um, because I had been before when it was very traumatic where it was we had a very short amount of time with people before they were split up or sent somewhere else and everyone was so terrified of me so for this experience for people to be really happy to see us and knowing that they were going to continue to be there that was a surreal a, sur a surreal element that i still can't wrap my head around to be honest but to mary lou's point I see faces from my first trip that I can't get out of my head because I don't know what happened to them it would have been nice to see them this trip just to know that they were safe but also I can understand going back and seeing a face and knowing that they're stuck there and knowing that the smile that they give us is essentially their hope and their strength mostly for their families right not that they're in the happiest place they've ever been. It's, it's truly a sign of strength. And, um, you know, I did do, I've been, I mean, I might get emotional on this. I'll try not to, but there is something of, of you know, moral injury is the only term that I can come whenever I come to and I try to explain it to other people. Whenever you see people in situations like this and then you get to go even to like a nice hotel room and have a shower at the end of the day, that's hard. And it's harder every time you do it because, you know, we can say that we stand for equality and lots of things. We can say we stand for being good Christians or being however we feel politically or how we feel as feminist or whatever label down the line, right? And at the end of the day, we're not doing that in the world. And you also feel from people who don't who don't see what's going on and they get a limited access of whatever news that they choose to intake how they feel about it on either side i have had friends on either side think that it's something that's made up to kind of fuel a political game right and so you feel that you feel of all of these opinions of people but you're there with people and you see it affecting their livelihoods and the fact that if this doesn't happen for them, if they don't actually get asylum, if they go back to where they came from, we know that that is essentially the end for them. That's genocide, truly. You know, that's a hard thing to come to terms with when you see these people and you know that we don't get to go back till maybe July and will they be there? We don't know, you know? So it's, it's hard to go sometimes, or it's not hard to go, it's easy to go. You wanna go back as much as you can. It's hard to come back and go back to your jobs and go back to your work and go back to loving your people who, I mean, we live a really good life of privilege. That's hard, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's all right. Scott? I think uh, Angela and Mary Lou have uh, captured it quite well. I would just add, this was my first trip. Uh, I am still processing it, um, having this conversation tonight has, has 
pulled up emotions that I had, I think, successfully tamped down. Um, uh, the more I think about it, the more angry I am. I will go back, I will help, but I also want to know more about what's going on in, in uh, uh, the camp, um, uh, the lives of these people, um, what's going on as they try to make the journey and, and are continued to rebuffed and pushed back, how the process is playing out. Um, all of that I wanna know more about and be able uh, from a um, humanitarian standpoint, uh, keep working with these people because the one thing that keeps coming back is uh, they are fellow humans and there's such an effort uh, to oftentimes uh, diminish what they're doing and diminish their value. Um, so it's an, it's an ongoing process, but I also realize that we have to actively um, work uh, on the, uh, on the uh, political front uh, to make our voices heard and to push for, for changes in policy that are clearly um, much needed at this point. Yeah. Um, and the policy piece is, is something that uh, we talked to, Faith and I talked a little bit about and that I want to um, circle back to as well. Um, this is a little bit of one, becomes a little bit challenging to talk with people because it's become so such a partisan um, issue. And it's been loaded, as I, as I mentioned earlier, with a lot of baggage around words that mean human and they've been turned to mean something else. Um, which, you know, this is, these are such bad parallels throughout all of, of history into modern day across um, other places in the world, uh, but also here at home, dehumanization efforts um, often are what come before what we call in our literature administrative evil that comes before acts that are truly hor horrific. Um, and dehumanization is one of the, one of the precursors that legitimizes harm um, extensive harm against humans um, and um, so it uh, you know it's um, it's become a hard thing to talk about um, from a policy standpoint uh, because of the way in which um, the tools used to talk about it are often dehumanization tools which appeal to really long-standing things in the brain um, that um, to make it hard for people to overcome. It's a, it's a, just a trickery tool that politicians have, have always used. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's frightening the degree to which it's been kind of effective in coloring this conversation, um, just the rhetoric around it. And so much so that that was, you know, as we've mentioned, just being on the ground to, to get a clear head about what are, what are the consequences of our policies towards refugees and asylum seekers. It's just even hard to have a clear head about it because it's such a barrage of, of dehumanization and madness. Um, so um, that's something we should well, come back to. <laughs> um, Justin, I would, can I, oh, this is Mary Lou, I was just gonna jump in and say, you know, we do such a good job of perpetuating fear, right, in our culture. 
and even um, people who totally support what we're what I've tried to do down there and the people I know who are going down there and our group who just went um, you know one of the things people always come back to is what's well, really not safe there and I think what's so interesting about that is I uh, I keep going back and it feels it feels like home and uh, I don't know if the rest of our group knows this. there was actually a an attack the Thursday night before we got there um, really close to the camp um, and so it is an area of Mexico that is not safe and that gang violence is prevalent and that um, kidnapping is big. And that's one of the reasons this is so unsafe for asylum seekers. But the fear that we perpetuate with those conversations and those stereotypes is um, so unfair and undeserving from any political standpoint that, that we're using this little tiny piece of fear to perpetuate something about something so much bigger than this tiny thing that we're potentially afraid of. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it, um, it does. Um, one, I wanted to bring Faith in. Um, she uh, stayed in Brownsville and did, did not, was not able to cross over with us, mostly because um, she doesn't have a passport, as listeners of the podcast will know. And Greg and I have been giving her a thorough hard time for not having a passport. So uh, I have to uh, give you a hard time once again. Um, but I was wondering, you know, we, we were able to have some conversations about it and you were able to, uh, you were able to help us prepare the meals, help load up. And then you saw us kind of leaving you um, and then coming back in the evenings. And I know, uh, you know, you've had some response to it as well. So maybe talk a little bit about what you were able to do and then, you know, any kind of um, responses um, that you would like to share as well. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I don't have a passport. And I'm very sorry for not having a passport. But just seeing the reaction from all of you guys whenever you all came back, it was definitely enough for me to get the point that things aren't what they should be down there. and. Um, yeah, just kind of going back to what Scott was saying about just these are people and it did feel really good being able to help out and just being part of the solution and not so much the problem and um, definitely inspired me to write a paper. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You wrote it on uh, in your ethics course. Huh? Uh, yeah. 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 Very nice. Do you want to share some of your argument? I'll just say that some of the politicization has definitely led to ethical wrongdoing. Um, there's a lot that we can do to be better. But, uh. Yeah, some of that with the way that just the, the rhetoric and language, not even, we haven't even gotten into the details of, of the actual laws and what the, what the actual legal framework is for handling asylum seekers, and then the actual policies put in place to try to find creative ways to discourage asylum seekers from showing up at our at our borders, um, even all that aside, it's it's amazing the 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 way in which the language gets captured. I I I just can't, you know. I, in conversations I have with people about this, that they've just replaced person with illegal, and they they've given a, a a status to people one that's that's opposite of what they're doing. They're legally seeking asylum in the U.S. by U.S. code and U.S. precedent. Um, but it just is like the it's as dehumanizing as about any kind of label they could come up with uh, in this space um so the rhetoric around it is just um is, is really challenging um 
what's on your mind? I have other questions, but uh, I don't want to completely steer the conversation. What are, what are things that has the conversations been unfolding that uh, any of you would like to share? To the point you just made, this is Scott, to the point you just made, I think a lot of people, a lot of that fear and rhetoric might shift. And I've said this to friends who sort of look at me askance when I said I went to the border. I think the your view might shift a bit, certainly, <coughs> certainly come into, my dog thinks that too, certainly, <laughs> certainly come into question if you spend a couple of nights serving meals to um, parents with small children, uh, parents just like I am with small children like I've had, parents who want nothing more than a better life for those children. Um, as a former journalist, I realized that what, what we see on the news and what we read is a, is a very narrow perspective just because uh, of limitations. Um, and it doesn't capture, I think, oftentimes that humanity, um, that um, when you understand that, um, shifts that polarization a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, um, you know, you hit on something there that, um, that's kind of stuck with me too, which, and it's just kind of a, you know, basic, I think, philosophical or biological thing, but it's, it's horrible to see um, the parents, it's horrible to see people my age just through sheer poor luck in the circumstance that they're in. But there's something like that is more, um, you know, kind of gnaws at you a little bit more when it's, when you see the children suffering and you see kind of the parents just trying to do the best they can to kind of keep them safe. You know, we, we did the uh, Escuelita on Sunday morning um, and there was, you know, essentially, I think four tents, there was uh, some people there helping in with some, some drawing and some English learning skills. And one group was doing yoga and one was kind of some basic physical activities. And one was working through some worksheets for the kids where they would get homework. This is this kind of makeshift school that they pulled together with a few volunteers um, that is on, on Sunday mornings. But, you know, I mean, what I do for a living is teach. And you know, you could just, there's not any way for a child to have to be kind of learning at that age, right? It's just not, it's not, it's not helpful for their learning, <laughs> you know, and it's, it was, it was great that they were doing something which we got to be a part of. And it's great that, you know, other organizations are going to start coming in to prepare more, but you know, these, these are people that have fled their homes. And, you know, I, I, it just doesn't seem that hard to just provide them a basic education, right? And so that was kind of the, you know, the serving the meals is, is so physically exhausting and it's such like a normal thing to kind of be interacting, having a meal with someone. Um, and you see the kids with their parents and that's, uh, um, you know, it, it feels much more normal, but then it's really being in, the te in, the, in my work setting, which is teaching and, and trying to help educate and then seeing kind of what they were having to pull together with such minimal resources for, I don't know, I mean, we, 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 we didn't count, but, we, you know, we were talking about, I think it was 150 plus children, right? And um, so, yeah, seeing the, seeing the ways in which it, 
is is impacting children in a way that is is kind of done deliberately to try to keep their parents from coming here for safety purposes is really you know the the, the child aspect of it is something that uh, that I have, you, you have a hard time processing and it's the kind of thing that uh, you know, I have like flashbacks to uh, particularly the first the, the following few days as you can just see these images of these children that were smiling and 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 some that were smiling, some that weren't, some that were crying, you know, all kinds of things are just kind of burned into your, into your brain, I think. Yeah. Um, I feel like I have like three different sound bites to like throw at you and I don't know where they, I mean, they all fit into the conversation, but it's just my thought process right now. Um, but number one is seeing the kids there is one of the hardest things. That is for sure one of the hardest things. Um, I have a background in domestic violence and sexual assault as well, working for a nonprofit where, you know, that was basically, that was our mission of, of helping. Um, so when you see the parents there, I felt like serving sometimes, you can see where people hold trauma in their faces and in their bodies. And when you pay really good close attention to someone, because one of the, the main things that they told us was when you serve someone, you don't just you're not just serving them, right? You're looking them in the eyes. You're trying to speak with them. Um, you're letting them know that this is a dignified exchange, right? I, I see you. Um, and you can see them caring a lot. That's why I'm saying like there, we saw a lot of smiles there. That was strength. That was hope and strength. And that was impressive. That's more than you see in a lot of people on a daily basis, I feel like. Um, I also feel like there are a lot of adults in that camp, men and women. And this goes back something, Scott, to something that you said in Sunday school, actually how you said you felt irrelevant because of your age, um, you know, with a bunch of millennials, um, which I hope that's okay that I just mentioned that. But, um, you know, I have an older husband and he has felt that way before too. And the thing about it is, is I don't feel like we talk enough across generations to let people know what's going on to a degree and, and that we're allowed to talk and that we're allowed to figure things out together and that one person up at the top, which right now being kind of a very loud, ugly president, right? Um, gets to dictate how everybody feels and how the pendulum is swinging in terms of rhetoric and terms of everything you know and i feel that way about like a church too i don't believe you just take a preacher's word for like the be all end all you know we see these things happening and i do feel like it's our purpose to go back and make sure people understand these policies and how they're affecting people and even seeing how things that sound like they don't relate to this like climate change and these people's homes and that being a an exodus factor right i mean there are tons of different ways that our world is shutting off, just like you said, with rhetoric, things that are important that they're making sure that we don't learn so that it's very easy for us to be scared of people that are actually just scared and fending for their lives in desperation and are the sweetest, right? When you meet them, they're the sweetest people you've ever met. And we're having to see that and then come back and talk to people who don't see that and only hear this rhetoric that's a that's a weird thing to try to navigate 
you know. It feels really like um, kind of bizarro land. I mean, it's like, you know, part of the way that people study some of the social media and echo chamber stuff say it's like people live in uh, alternate realities when we don't have agreed upon kind of basic facts about the world. And yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a big piece of this one coming back to to kind of try to describe it or talk about it and that the language around it sometimes that that just doesn't match at all with with the reality that you experienced with these people and and know from the the basic immigration policies and what the u.s code you know all the things that seem without the rhetoric pretty clear um um when you're trying to have these conversations because of the way the conversation's been hijacked it, it, it feels really bizarre. Um, it's like you're talking about two different actual realities. Right. And, and that's where, I mean, this is kind of off topic, but this is where like the generational stuff should come into play. Like when you see those kids in the camp, I mean, they're, they're from El Salvador, Guatemala, they're from all over, right? They have different dialects, they have different languages that they can communicate with. And you see them interacting with each other and kind of living out this almost normal looking child experience to them, right? Mm -hmm. And they can do it, right? So it feels like we should be able to do it and we're not doing it. And I don't know, I don't know how to do it. I mean, we're all trying to figure out how to do it. But I mean, I felt like I was looking at those, those kids trying to figure out how to communicate the way they could communicate and thrive the way that they could thrive. I mean, they were thriving the best that they could there and they were laughing. I mean, you know, they can, they were resilient. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also a, in some ways a, a, a touching picture of the human spirit, right? Despite being stateless and homeless and being, you know, living in a tent while uh, waiting for their day in court, um, essentially, um the the fact that they're able to push through and, and you know it is kind of a, a beautiful side of the children too i mean they seem to it becomes you know it becomes their normal pretty quick and then they're just doing normal children things sometimes um which again is just kind of strikes you as as bizarre is the only way i really know how to to, to describe it well a most perfect example of how bizarre is when you watch somebody have their quinceanera in a refugee camp to have her dance right. with her mother next to porta potties, right? Like yeah. holding on to the tradition um, and so the life that happens in childhood in a space where it doesn't seem like it could flourish. I mean, there is something powerful and hopeful about that. Uh, right. That's awful. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> One of well, one of, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say another example that we talked about in the car ride on the way home that I don't think we got to talk about with you, Justin and Faith, um, was there was a young trans person in the camp and they came through my line every night, right? And I, you know, I could tell by the mannerisms and dress and everything, right? And um, on the way home, I was looking up different articles, just reading about the relationship between Brownsville and Matamoros and about how in downtown in Bronzeville and in Matamoros, they had had so many beatings and killings of people who were LGBTQ, right? And that goes back to the rhetoric. But that person found a better community in that camp than they did in their own communities. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
that's a trip, right? That's like, that's a community failing to support their people. So, I mean, we're afraid of these people. And if anyone met these people, you would not be afraid of these people, right? I mean, that's what's, that's what's the craziest thing when you come home that you can't explain to someone. You know, children, you can say, you can love these children. There's nothing, I mean, you're just an asshole if you don't love children, right? <laughs> but when it comes to adults or anyone else that you can't identify with their label, then all of a sudden, I mean, that goes to like, what kind of shame do you hold on? What kind of label do you feel, right? Why are you judging this person? Is it the color of their skin? Is it because you feel like you don't have enough and they're going to come take something from you? I mean, where does that come from? That's confusing. That's confusing to me. I don't understand that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No. Scott, you were, you were going to say something as well? It, it's, it's much less profound and deep uh, than what Angela just said. I, but I found one of the most connecting moments I had um, as one, one human being to another, I served the salad. And I discovered very quickly that refugee children, like all children, uh, probably across the world, do not like green leafy vegetables. <laughs> and I started teasing the children in my horrible <laughs> Spanish. And um, the children got it from the look on their faces. And, and so did the parents. And it was sort of a, a moment that everybody laughed. And uh, again, it, it uh, again, to the point of, of going, I think it is important for them to see us, but it's also very important for us to see them and for both of us to see people as just other people. I think something really beautiful too about that story is that I was in the same line with dad when he was serving the salad and some of the little kids would come by and I speak enough Spanish to get by and he'd be, dad would be trying to get them to take these vegetables and these kids would be like, oh, he sounds like my dad. <laughs> and to one little girl, I was like, that is my dad. And she goes, oh, parents. And I was like, it doesn't matter who you are. Your parents try to get you to eat vegetables and it is annoying. And every human in the world can relate to that. I mean, like, that is such a basic life experience. My, my adult figure wants me to eat something that they think is green and good for me. So I want to ask um, each of you the following, following question. So the question is, what was the most troubling thing to you, which we've talked a little bit about, maybe you could just say what was the most troubling thing to you about your, the experience you had, and what was the most kind of positive thing that you saw, right? So what things that you saw were most troubling to you, and then what thing to you was the most positive given the circumstances. Um, and I'll, I'll go first to kind of give you a moment to think since I'm putting you on the spot with questions, which I try not to do too much as the host. Um, so I, uh, I mentioned earlier, the most uh, troubling thing for me is to um, see the limited resources to, uh, to educate children and kind of the situation them and them, their parents find themselves in. Um, uh, in that particular situation, 
I think it's because I'm an educator, it really uh, was hard to watch and be a part of it. Also could have been that it was Sunday and I was pretty exhausted by then, but um, children who need education not get it is always, um, I think is, is just challenging, um, particularly given the situation in which these people are in. Um, and on the flip side, you know, the most kind of positive thing um, is, you know, the nonprofits on the ground are providing immense amounts of relief um, with a relatively small group of volunteers, all things considered. So there's roughly 2,500 people was the best guess we got of individuals in the camp. There being, uh, there's a roughly a thousand hot meals served a night. Um, there's the sandwiches. Um, Team Brownsville is, has kind of taken the lead on some of these coordinations and now World Central Kitchen has helped with the food. Team Brownsville is still taking lead in the coordination, taking the lead in um, getting resources brought, uh, additional resources over and above the food. So they're working with some organizations to bring in regular, uh, an organization called Yes We Can uh, to, to have daily teaching, daily school instead of once a week. So it was, you know, on the positive side, um, even if they're being mistreated by governments, it's really nice to see the role that nonprofits have come in in this space and are, are just providing, you know, basic humanitarian relief to people who aren't getting it from, from anyone else. So I think those are, that's my most kind of troubling um, and my most uh, positive things that I, that I observed. Would anyone like to volunteer to go next? I'll go, if go no ahead. one else is ready. Yeah. And um, mine are kind of threefold. I'll try to make them short, but I mean, they're pretty equally in my mind. Like the troubling things are um, some of the things we didn't actually see a lot of on this trip except for that the numbers have grown and that they're stuck there longer. I mean, that's obviously the biggest thing. They're in limbo and they're in limbo because of the mess that we keep throwing around up here. Um, so, I mean, that just proves that we need more help. There are people that show up and we're helping in that way, but we need policymakers who will give us help, right? We need people that won't deny certain, you know, policies that we've been put in effect on other countries. I mean, they're, they're, this is a domino effect from a lot of things. I mean, it just truly is, right? And um, so I guess that's the most troubling. That's the most troubling with, you know, some of the reac reactions I get at home. Um, and then the most, you know, kind of uplifting thing that I saw is the kids that are so resilient. And I know that I mean, I, tr I have real faith that they're gonna be okay and that they're gonna take from this experience. I mean, and I have to feel this way, right? I have to know that they're gonna be okay. So this is maybe my way of making this situation okay in my mind because I, it's hard to find enough, something that's good in this sometimes. But I just hope that, I mean, kids have been through war, kids have been through revolutions and those are the people that I see that will come back and hopefully do make sure that things like this don't happen again. But I mean, when you see these kids there, you know that we have filled them in some way. That's how I feel. That's how I feel no matter what is going on. And I just have to add this because it feels like, you know, once you start talking about this, it's emotional and it's like word, word vomit. But, um, you know, when I see those men in line, because it's not just the kids, it's the women and the 
men too. I see like my mother and my father and things that they had to carry through their life that no one else could give them su support and, s and space to um, survive, you know? And then I think about my nephews who are Native American and Mexican, and I see people that only look at these people and just see color, and that's what this is. I mean, you just, that's undeniable, you know? If it were different, it, it, there just would be an, a different outcome. You can't change my mind on that because I've heard too many comments, you know? So, I mean, I take it personally whenever I see people not wanting to help them and wanting to say, I'd rather let them stay in a field by a river and I don't care how they sleep, I don't care how they bathe, I don't care that there could be cartels outside of where they are that are fueled by a drug problem that we perpetuate, right? Nobody's taking responsibility for anything. And they're just acting like these are irresponsible humans that are showing up to take things from us. That will forever just burn me. Yeah, it is. Um, it's tough uh, to hear the language around it, particularly once you've seen the people, right? And it, it's hard to imagine. Um, it's hard to um, it's hard to imagine that you know race doesn't play a piece of it, um, and a significant other crowd uh, mentality makes the dehumanization attempts easier. Um, and um, yeah, it uh, it does it brings out some of the uh, kind of not so great in people, um, in a combination of, of fear and and not understanding um and it can be a really toxic um toxic mixture when guided in a way to dehumanize um and again this is this is this is not a new phenomenon this has played out over history over and over and over again uh, we use fear and misinformation to dehumanize and fear and misinformation and dehumanization lead to um, bad outcomes for humans. But I will just add real quickly, like my, my other uplifting thing is obviously you guys, we never met each other before this trip. And we met so many people on that trip that just showed up. So there are people that are coming to do the right thing, right? And you just have to have faith that we'll all continue to do it and work. And I mean, we support each other, right? So, mm -hmm. and like, I've already, Mary Lou's one of my heroes for having done this just on her own, right? So, I mean, you see people that are continuously doing things and that does give you um, an extra fire in you that, you know, something's gonna get better. I mean, it just does. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me one proud former professor. Uh, Mary Lou helped pull all this together because it was, I was uh, aware of things um, but didn't know what a clear opportunity was to help. And it was kind of through her service and um, uh, her voice that, that I was aware of the situation and was, um, was able to kind of look into it uh, kind of further on the ground and uh, have this experience. So um, I, uh, I am one proud former professor. Um, Scott or Mary Lou would, uh, or Faith, would anyone like to jump in with their, um, some of the maybe more troubling moment or um, a more kind of positive moment? I'll kind of jump in just uh, 
echoing what Angela said about her negative. Um, so one troubling thing was some of the reactions that we got after posting about some of this stuff. Uh, one comment that was made to me was basically just implying that these parents are irresponsible and that kind of made me pretty mad um, just because as, as we've talked about in other podcast episodes, no one wants to make this trip. And uh, I think it takes a lot of mental and physical strength for parents to put their families through this. Um, so that just that kind of reaction, I did not like at all, but also echoing Angela's point about there are good people who want to do good things and it was really nice seeing just kind of everybody, again, going across generations, just coming together to help these people. So. Thank you. Father or daughter, anyone want to take a, take a stab? I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and let Mary, Mary Lou wrap it all up. Um, uh, I think the most troubling thing uh, uh, that that haunts me and I, I and causes me to lose lose sleep, and, and you hinted at it. Uh, this is a, a a story that's been going on for thousands of years, someplace, many places in the world. Um, most of us, I think, if we look back, we'll find that somewhere some of our ancestors were indeed uh, refugees uh, um, in one shape or the other. Uh, I know certainly there were in my family. Um, I think it, what we saw was uh, three days of an unwritten, one unwritten chapter of this story. Um, and with, I don't know who mentioned it, but uh, the whole issue of uh, environmental change, uh, um, there's the, a good possibility that a lot more of us will find ourselves uh, refugees in a few years. Uh, so I think it's very, very important that uh, we continue not only to, to help folks at the border, but uh, uh, meet this challenge um, in places where we can have an impact, um, whether it be with corporations, but whether it be with the government, um, whatever. All that said, uh, the one thing I saw uh, more than anything that made me feel good was hope. I saw it in the, the, the work and the actions of the volunteers and the, uh, the not-for-profits that were involved, but I also saw it on the faces of those families. I think one of the highest moments for me was when we were, they have a very large tent there that they now serve everyone, a dinner. And um, there was a sense of community and a sense of hope among those, those people uh, and among both the refugees and uh, those who were trying to help um, that came together um, in that tent every day. A sense of hope, 
a sense of a, a future. And I think we have to uh, channel our anger and fight as much as we can to change the situation, but at the same time, continue to give folks hope. Yeah, I, that's nicely put, Scott. I'd, um, there's a lot, um, as we've talked about, that uh, from a policy standpoint, that sometimes makes it hard to hold on to that hope with them. Um, and as we've talked about force, you know, um, lowering the number of refugees that we're allowing in as a country. Um, the governor of Texas has announced that for 2020, we're going to accept zero refugees, apparently because we've done enough. Um, and so it's hard to, uh, and the numbers of people who apply for asylum that the U.S. government believes or that then are given uh, actual asylum to the U.S. as a percentage is, uh, is also not encouraging. Um, it's something we'll talk more about um, um, as we do more episodes in the series, where we're going to talk with some immigration lawyers, some immigration experts to kind of put that stuff more in a general context. But the basic takeaway is that we're not, um, we're not engaging in policy that is encouraging for hope for these people. Um, and that is kind of hard to, um, to kind of square. And I think that's part of the trauma of this for all of us. And, uh, and for me is to see that hope and to know on the ground in the US what the attitudes are towards them as humans and what our current leaders, the decisions they're making um, that are gonna impact their lives. It just, um, seems like a just a gross miscarriage of, of of basic human rights and due process and following our own own legal code um, in a way that's celebrated that is that is you know um, um, really kind of troubling um, Mary Lou are you um, are would you like to um, kind of sh share about some of the more troubling things from this visit and some of the more positive things uh I mean, would I like to? No, but will I? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I I have this friend, and um, we have this running joke that she's the sage to my prophet. Right? She is the person that can help me find the ground when my anger and my voice and um, my need for people to understand the injustices happening get too big for people to um, to really listen to, and. She and I talked the other day and I was just listing off all of the things that I was angry about and all of the things that just felt unfair and horrific about not just this trip, but every time I go down. And um, and I said, I said to her, you know, I think if I really on, was honest about how I felt, I would not get out of bed. I don't know that I could go back down. Um, I don't know if I sat in the pain that we witnessed. Um, that I could do it. I don't know that you can sit amongst people who are telling you stories of family members being shot in front of their eyes, um, being scared to go home at night, being scared that their children are going to get abducted and sell, sold into uh, sex trafficking. I don't know how you wake up the next day and say, okay, um, I, I'm going to keep talking about this. I'm going to keep showing up. I'm going to keep working towards something better. Um, uh, we have a rule in our house. We don't watch the news in the evenings because it makes me angry. <laughs> um, and because, because it's hard. Um, 
so I think like everything everybody said was a hard moment and was horrific. Um, the fact that, you know, this is a conversation we're having to have is horrific to me. Um, and yet I keep showing up because we can't not for those people. Um, because I hope and believe without a doubt that each human has dignity. Um, and if they had enough faith and hope to believe that they could get to get this far on this journey, um, if they risked as much as we know they risked with cartels and gang violence, um, sexual assault, trafficking, death, for them to get this far and them to still be here and still waiting, um, if they have that kind of hope, then I have to have that kind of hope and I have to keep showing up for them. Um, I think to me, the most beautiful moments are uh, kids sneezing in your face, um, the markers and the snot you have running down your pants after hanging out with them. Um, there's something beautiful to me in the exhaustion uh, of getting to spend your time with these humans. Uh, I am so grateful that y'all came with me um, it's been really hard and really discouraging um, for over a year now to try to get people to see why I want them to see this, um, see why I keep showing up for these people, keep um, keep hugging them, keep practicing my Spanish. Um, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts in Spanish. That's frustrating sometimes when you don't know what's being said. And I can't imagine how those families feel when they get to the border and are handed a piece of paper saying, oh, your key to getting in here is to read this document in English that you've never seen in your life that most people who are fluent in English don't understand, the legal jargon. Um, if they have hope and they have the strength and they can continue to show up, then we will continue to show up. Um, there is goodness in the fight, as painful and as uh, sleepless and um, as hard as it is. Uh, for me, the really awful and the really good just kind of coincide in every aspect of this because because um, I just keep thinking, God, how have we gotten this far that this is what we're doing to other humans? But also, man, I am so glad that there are other humans showing up for these people um, every day. So uh, I think my, my really awful and my really good just kind of all gets melded together in this weird space of these are humans who want good things for their families and want to be safe and want to live successful lives and um, want to live in community. And, and I want us to be part of giving that to them. And I want us to be part of helping everybody understand that they deserve that because we each deserve that too. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, anybody have any kind of um, parting things uh, that they'd like to say about this experience, about um, uh, how it's affected you? Uh, there will to to the audience that might have listened to this long uh, or uh, along with us in this conversation. Anything that um, you would like to leave? Uh, on the table for anyone. I think now is maybe a, maybe a good time to give you that opportunity. Well, I I think the first and foremost is um, 
it is not that hard for you to be involved um, and for you to bring justice into this space. And there are 900,000 ways you can do that. And if the very first thing you do is start following um, groups on Instagram and on Twitter and on Facebook that are doing good work, that is a first step. Being part of these conversations is a first step. Um, calling out harmful rhetoric is a first step. And it is a way to be involved without investing in a weekend or um, investing any money. You can be part of changing what is happening in our world um, just by learning and just by being aware and just by the way you speak and talk about this issue. That, that is powerful and very important. Um, and if you want to engage and you want to go see more or you want to get involved in some way, um, reach out, let's get you, let's get you there. Um, come love on people and come bring dignity to people um, and come be part of, of seeking justice. Thank you. And uh, we'll also uh, provide uh, in the links with the, with the podcast uh, links to Team Brownsville and World Central Kitchen for sure, um, how to uh, get in touch with them, how to donate, how to be connected with them on social media. Um, so if you're listening to this, um, you should be able to find that in the description of this, uh, of this episode of the series, because um, I think it'll be a, a nice way to maybe help connect some people. Anyone else have anything that they would like to leave um, the listeners with? I just add to Mary Lou's comment, um, as you get involved, get, a, get involved across, uh, across borders, across boundaries, across cultures, across languages, uh, get involved across generations. I think we've all discovered something there. Um, to Mary Lou's point, um, um, he, contributing is good, but acting in your voice is what is really needed. Thanks, Scott. Anyone else have anything they'd like to add as we close down? I mean, I'm just going to echo what they said, but you know, it's, you get, educate yourself on what's going on because it's confusing and I know it's hard to stay up on it. Um, but the links that you're going to put up here, the people that Mary Lou talked about, people who go into this, um, with integrity and wanting to show you the, the dignity that can be had in this situation, they want to tell you the truth and you can listen to facts without, um, trying to bring in politics and opinion. Uh, you know, you can and you can form your own opinion of what's going on and it will very quickly turn into that you just want to help these people if you have a heart. That's just not, that's what you will find. Um, so yeah, you can cook, you can show up, you can send money to them, you know, you can, I mean, there are lots of ways that you can get involved if you're taking care of your family and yeah, you can shut the rhetoric down whenever it comes to your table. That's the number one thing because that's what we're dealing with at home. And I hate to be the one to say it, but I mean, we are voting right now. So that's important, you know, mm -hmm. that would be a big help too. Voting is it's to hard because. Go ahead, Mary Lou. Sorry. I was gonna say, it's, it's hard because we keep talking about how we don't want this to be partisan, but it becomes political. I don't think yeah. that's wrong, but I think it's something we have to be aware of and we have to work through, right? Like, I don't think, my 
experience is this is not a partisan issue when you start talking about the people in the stories. Right. Um, and that's why the stories and the experiences and all of that matters so much. 100%. And if it is, it, it, it shouldn't be partisan that refugees' lives are important to us, like particularly when they show up at our border and declare asylum in the legal way that we've set up for them. Um, and, um, you know, that has become a partisan issue, but it, it doesn't necessarily need to be. And I think irrespective of your political orientation or your political party, um, having um, kind of kindness in your heart for fellow humans uh, and honoring our own um, basic precedent for how we treat these people, um, these fellow humans, um, doesn't need to be a partisan issue. It can just be kind of supporting basic human rights and supporting our fellow humans. And it doesn't, doesn't have to be a partisan issue. Um, and I hope if you followed with us this long, um, you've uh, been able to take away um, some understanding of what it's like on the ground um, just across the U.S. border from Brownsville and Matamoros as direct uh, consequences of a number of, of kind of global factors. Um, but in part, they're currently there um, trying to seek asylum in the U.S. and being held there um, through what is commonly known as Remain in Mexico program while they await their opportunity to make their case. Um, as we mentioned throughout, this is not a, a long process. Um, these, I mean, this is not a short process. This is a process that's long and drawn out, and sometimes it's hard for the asylum seekers to get the accurate information that they need. Um, this is all coming from people who are showing up and declaring that they want to be asylum seekers in the U.S. Um, um, so I think you know, keeping that in mind and keeping in mind the, the horrible historical precedents that come along with uh, systematic dehumanization efforts at the other is something that, um, that I hope you'll, you'll take away from this conversation. Um, we may uh, talk with this wonderful crowd again. I just wanna say thanks again to uh, Mary Lou um, for helping organize this trip. We all were able to uh, have an easy way to, to kind of have an, uh, this experience in part thanks to her. Thanks to the, to the Bush School of Government and Public Service for um, connecting me with such wonderful students in Faith Dingus and uh, Mary Lou Hare. Um, Scott and Angela, it's been um, such a pleasure to uh, get to know the two of you and hear your stories. Um, and it was, um, it was nice to have a community to kind of uh, to go to experience this um, with. Um, we'll be having a, a number of episodes uh, from the podcast uh, around this theme of asylum seeking in the U.S. and what is, what's the precedent there, some more details on some of the numbers, some more details on some of the policies. We'll speak with at least a couple more experts uh, in this area to kind of get you a, get a sense of what the experts have to say. But given this particular situation, I thought it was useful just to hear from uh, other people about their responses to, to what, what this is like on the ground and just kind of hear the stories. I think it shows an important part of the picture when so much of this dialogue um, has been hijacked by the way it's presented to most Americans. Um, thanks again, everyone. Um, and it's been a real pleasure, real pleasure um, uh, chatting with you tonight. Thanks for sharing. Thank you.